If you've been watching college basketball this month, you know that it has been a season of underdogs. And that will do it. Do you believe it? For just the second time ever, a 16 beats a one. There was that game where a 16th seed Fairleigh Dickinson beat top-ranked Purdue. Then this past weekend... It's the biggest win in Hurricane Hoops history. The University of Miami was down by double digits before they overtook the Texas Longhorns anyway. On Saturday, the Final Four will battle it out. So, Dan, tell me, like, how mad is March Madness this year? This year is one of the more unique tournaments we've ever seen. Dan Murphy is a reporter at ESPN. Yeah, I heard it described as the final four nobody could have expected. Like, literally no one's brackets were right. Is that right? I think that's probably fair to say. Mine are certainly a disaster and have been for a while now. The question I had for Dan was how much of this craziness has to do with money. Two years back, new rules for college athletes rolled out, giving them a chance to endorse products and collect fees for doing so. Caitlin Clark, super fan, almost famous popcorn. Caleb Love, fanatic, Andias, ice cream. If you watch enough sports, you already know how this rule is changing the game. Hoops players are endorsing Crocs, You can buy potato chips with college athletes stamped on the side. A deodorant brand is recruiting amateur basketball stars. Basically, if you can sell it, there is a March Madness tie-in. Great Clips, official hair salon of March Madness. Do you think this college basketball tournament would look as wild as it does without a newly opened spigot of money flowing to players? It's hard to say. It's it's one data point and really early on. But one of the big concerns when college athletes were first allowed to make money from people inside the college sports world was that all of the talent is going to concentrate among the richest schools. Clearly, this year's tournament is evidence to the contrary. We have folks from Florida Atlantic, from San Diego State, and from Miami, schools that have never made the Final Four before and definitely not the blue bloods of college basketball. Dan says, the one thing we do know is that this tournament is a cash cow, raking in close to a billion dollars a year. And as college athletes work out these side deals, the NCAA seems to be wishing it could call a timeout. So this month, while players have been hitting the court, the NCAA has been lobbying Congress. They're asking Congress for help to try to wrestle back some control over the sports that they used to they used to have complete control over. Huh. I didn't know that, like, you could do that. Be like, hey, I'm having some problems working my stuff out over here. <laughs> Congress, could you make me a rule? Usually it's pretty frowned upon to say, hey, I have a problem. I want Congress to solve it. But the only organization I know of that might actually move slower than Congress has been the NCAA. Today on the show, why March Madness has struck the Capitol. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Let's start here. The rules for money in college sports did not change because the NCAA wanted them to. They changed because they were forced. Back in 2021, the Supreme Court issued a unanimous opinion that called out the Collegiate Sports Association for raking in cash while refusing student-athletes a piece of the pie. That is when the organization devised what's come to be known as the NIL system, which allows players to be paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness. It's hard to overstate how massive a shift this was, but I asked Dan Murphy to try. One of the the foundational principles of college sports since it was started more than 100 years ago was that college athletes are amateurs. They're students first, they're not professionals. And for 100 plus years, that meant that college athletes weren't allowed to make any money at all off of their athletic ability. They got scholarships to go to school. They got a little bit of money for books and room and board and that type of thing. But that was the limit. This is like a volunteer gig, essentially. <laughs> they're they're there to get an education was was the line, right? They would get some benefit from it, but uh, they weren't. Yeah, they weren't part of the uh, money making part of the sport. In the past 20 or 30 years, the amount of money flowing through college sports has exploded, largely thanks to TV rights deals. And so it's gotten harder and harder to justify as coaches and athletic administrators get increasingly rich off of these sports. It's getting harder and harder to justify not giving the athletes a bigger cut of this. So there's been this ongoing effort to sort of erode at amateurism over the past 20 years. And the biggest step in that process came about two years ago when the NCAA changed its rules to allow players to make money from their name, image, and likeness. Tonight, after growing pressure, the NCAA voting to allow student-athletes to cash in on their sports success, allowing them to earn money on lucrative endorsements, personal appearances, even autograph signings. And this was important because, like, there had been aberrant stories, right? Like, a basketball player named Ed O'Bannon, who'd played for UCLA, who realized he was in a video game and the university was making money off of his name, image, and likeness, but he wasn't. Like, I think he realized from playing the game one day. Yeah, he saw himself in the game and realized that he should be paid for that. I mean, there are stories going back even further than that, where some of the very best players in college basketball in the 90s would walk past stores and see their jerseys with their names on the back of them being sold. And the schools would make all the money from that. And, you know, in the meantime, they couldn't afford to buy one of their own jerseys because they weren't making money. So how does this payment system work in theory? 
there are sort of two main buckets for how athletes are making money now. The first one is through the fact that they do have legitimate marketing value. These are somewhat famous athletes, both on their campuses and in some cases nationwide. So whether it's a big brand like McDonald's or Nike coming to the athletes and paying them the same they would pay professional athletes to appear in commercials, or on a more local level, having the local car dealership want to promote you and give you a free car for touting their dealership on social media or something like that is a popular one. So legitimate endorsement value is, is one of those buckets. The second one, and the one that's the bigger concern for a lot of people in college sports, is groups of boosters who have for a long time paid athletes under the table against the NCAA rules have now gotten together and sort of organized themselves to pay what's become a de facto salary. So athletes will take money. They still have to do something on paper to earn it. It might be showing up for a meet and greet event or signing some autographs for fans that this groups of boosters will then go and sell. But they're being paid primarily for their athletic ability, uh, despite the rules saying that these payments should be strictly for endorsement value. To see how this works in practice, you can look directly at the final four. The University of Miami has perfected the art of using boosters. Those are fans who support the school financially to bankroll the development of their basketball team, which had not been a standout until recently. This is the first time that Miami has ever been to a Final Four, and they took a huge step over the past two years uh, as at the same time that NIL rules changed. And one of the main forces behind the the way that Miami's roster looks now is a billionaire uh, who went to the University of Miami, whose kids played sports at the University of Miami, Miami, named John Ruiz, who owns a couple companies in South Florida and has more than 100 different University of Miami athletes as endorsers of some of the companies that he owns. A hundred. That's a lot. It's, it's huge. I don't know of any individual company or group that has more people, more college athletes from a specific school on, uh, on their payroll. What does it mean to be on the payroll of John Ruiz? Like, what are you doing? So Ruiz owns a couple, couple companies. One of them's called Life Wallet, which is kind of a, a medical information privacy software company. And so any athlete that he signs has to do some type of promotion for Life Wallet. Some of them have appeared in commercials. Some of them just tweet about it on social media. Um, but in exchange for that, they get a pretty decent amount of money. For example, one of the stars of Miami's basketball team is a guy named Nigel Pack, who last year played for Kansas State. This summer, he announced he was transferring to Miami, and within 48 hours of deciding to go to Miami, it was also announced that he was going to be making $800,000 over the course of two seasons from LifeWallet, this company owned by John Ruiz. $800,000. I was going to ask how much people were making, but I mean, that's that's pretty breathtaking. Well, when you think about the the coaches of these teams are all making millions of dollars, the tournament itself brings in more than a billion dollars a year in TV revenue. The amount of money flowing through college sports has, like we said, skyrocketed over the last 25 years. And this is just a little bit of a look at how much money could be flowing to players if there weren't obstacles in the way from from keeping them earning a, a straight salary or getting more of a direct cut of some of the revenue that's produced by the ticket sales and the TV rights for these games. You mentioned that this one player in particular transferred from Kansas State. 
And I know that around the same time that the NCAA was changing its name, image, and likeness rules, it was also changing the way athletes could transfer and what could what they could do when they did transfer, how quickly they could play. It seems to me like these two things, like the students being able to switch schools pretty easily and the money, those could kind of collide and create an especially chaotic system. Is that what's happening? Absolutely. It's created something that is the equivalent of free agency in professional sports, where athletes can jump from team to team very quickly. It's it's made it very hard for college coaches to try to build and make a consistent roster. It's, it's given them a lot more problems than they've ever had before. What kind of problems? Like, what, what are coaches complaining about? So, yeah, the, the main complaint from coaches is that other people are tampering with their rosters and trying to recruit players who are already on their team, something that they've been able to avoid. Pro sports usually solves this problem by having long-term contracts and penalties for tampering. But because college sports doesn't see their athletes as employees, they see them as students, it's really hard to impose any rules on you know whether the, the regular students can change schools, so why can't the athletes change schools? It becomes really difficult for coaches to try to fend off everybody. If you have a star player coming up through your program and the richer school down the road wants to wants to go pick them up or have if they have a big booster down the road that thinks this player might help his favorite team, uh, it's it's hard to hang on to the players that you're helping to to create and, and have some consistency in your roster. Earlier in the season, another coach accused Miami of buying its team. Do you think that's a fair accusation? I'm not sure it would be fair to say that Miami bought this team. Certainly, John Ruiz has helped make Miami more attractive, a more attractive place for a lot of college basketball players, but he has operated well within the rules. Uh, he's doing the same thing that a lot of other programs are doing right now, and frankly, a lot of programs have done under the table for a long time before this. I think it's new, and it's uncomfortable for coaches, and they don't exactly, they're losing control over some of this part of the process, and it's causing people to point a lot of fingers, but there's no reason why college athletes shouldn't be able to share in some of the the money that they helped to generate, and that's really what Miami's coach said when asked about this a week ago. It's interesting because I was reading this op-ed from Bomani Jones in the Times a couple days back, and he was he raised the story of a football player who basically tried to get a name image likeness package from University of Miami, actually, and was expecting like nine million bucks. But then another school came through with 13 million bucks and then everything fell apart. And to him, he looked at a story like that and was like, because there are no rules, even though some student athletes are benefiting, all student athletes are actually vulnerable. I think that's fair. I think there the lack of regulation, the lack of a school being able to help their athletes does make it more likely that somebody who wants to take advantage of a naive 18-year-old who all of a sudden is potentially worth a million dollars, those folks are, are definitely coming out of the woodwork. There have definitely been... NIL deals where people have been taken advantage of. Um, and as much as schools would like to try to solve some of those issues, they feel like they have to keep um, a little bit of distance from this because they don't want to be seen as the ones orchestrating these NIL deals. The, the bigger problem, I think, is that in many ways, this is the only mechanism for all of the money flowing through college sports to make its way down to the main labor force in college sports, the athletes themselves. It sounds like you're saying 
the NCAA doesn't love how this system is working. It's a system that they kind of put out there. And also, like, the fundamental problem is that the NCAA doesn't want to see these people as employees. So it's this seems like a problem of their own design. Very much so. They were forced into this system, right? They didn't choose this system. They were sort of backed into a corner by federal lawsuits. And this is absolutely a transitionary period for college sports. The current system isn't ideal really for anybody involved. The athletes aren't necessarily getting paid for their most important assets, which is their athletic ability. The schools don't like the system because they're losing control over it. But right now, no one can really agree on the best way to move forward. After the break, why the NCAA is asking Congress to figure out the best way forward. Hey, everyone. This is a quick shout out to our Spotify listeners. We are so glad you guys are here. If you found us through the Daily Drive playlist, that's super. We have one extra step we would love if you took, and that is to follow What Next on Spotify. What Next is Slate's short daily news podcast that helps you make sense of the stories that matter most. When the news feels overwhelming, we're here to help you answer What Next. You can follow us directly by searching for What Next in the Spotify app. It makes it easier for you to find us every weekday, and it really helps the show. All right. Thanks again for tuning in. Catch you on the other side of the ad break. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers – all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex. But it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters wherever you listen. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket? 
So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. This week in Washington, student athletes and coaches will sit down in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee to try to explain how the NCAA's NIL system is working for them. This is billed as a hearing on protecting the name, image, and likeness rights of college students. But Dan Murphy says it's more complicated than that because it is the NCAA itself who's been lobbying lawmakers for a change here. The NCAA has asked Congress to say, in order to regulate this on a nationwide level, we need some type of federal law here because there are a number of state laws that are slightly different from one another, and we want to be able to have some control over what happens here in the future. The only way we can do that, they say, is if Congress passes a law. Uh, there are plenty of people who would, who would disagree with that and think the NCAA should probably go off and solve its own problems or come to grips with the reality that they need to cut players in on, at least you know, at the high levels of, of football and basketball, some of the money that they make. Um, but, but right now, it looks like the NCAA is relying on Congress to try to pass some kind of a law. And it remains to be seen if, if Congress will actually be able to do that. And it sounds like the NCAA, like they just they have a new president who is like a former player, but also involved in political circles. So it sounds like they're kind of reorganizing themselves, thinking that they're going to be making a case in the world of politics right now. Is that fair? Totally. Yeah. The the new president of the NCAA who took over this march is the former governor of Massachusetts, who was the most popular governor in the country, despite being a Republican in a very Democratic state. And one of his biggest assets, the reason he was hired by the NCAA, was because they believe he has the political acumen to go to Capitol Hill and convince people in Congress to help the NCAA. What would a dream law from Congress directed at the NCAA look like? The NCAA's official wish, wish list has included part of a law that will explicitly say that college athletes aren't employees. They want to make sure that they maintain the uh, student-to-school relationship with college athletes. And the president of the NCAA, Charlie Baker, he's like, he said explicitly, like, I've never spoken to an athlete who wants to be an employee. Is that true in your opinion? It's I, whether or not he is ever that that that's probably true, but I don't know that. I'm sure if you pulled a lot of athletes and told them that they could get a bigger chunk of money as as an employee, or if they were treated as a professional, you'd get plenty of them that would would ask for more money. But one of the biggest problems with solving the future of the NCAA is when we see college sports as fans, a lot of us see the Final Four and Alabama football and Ohio State football and, and Miami's basketball team. When people like Charlie Baker look at the NCAA, and they're not totally wrong to do this, they see over a thousand different schools and hundreds of thousands of college athletes that range from the guy who's going to be the top pick in next the next year's NBA draft down to the guy who was a decent player on your high school team who's now playing at a small division three school. So the benefits that the overwhelming majority of college athletes receive as part of playing college sports are a pretty good deal for them. But the amount of money generated by the very top end of college sports makes it really hard to keep all of these athletes under the same umbrella. 
Okay, so I understand why the NCAA would be coming to Congress and saying, hey, let's like never say these people are employees. (laughs) What else would the NCAA want out of Congress in terms of some kind of rule that would make their lives easier? One of the main things that they want, and probably the most controversial thing that they want, is some type of an antitrust carve-out exemption that would protect them from any future lawsuits that from past players who say, hey, my earnings were severely limited during my time in college because of rules that you've now gotten rid of and that seem to be illegal. So I want a cut of this. Um, and there there are active antitrust lawsuits along those lines in the process right now that could be financially crippling for the NCAA. So they're hoping that Congress will help them avoid that by passing a law, by saying this is a a somewhat unique industry and it deserves unique rules because of that. That's a gutsy ask, given that (laughs) the Supreme Court a couple years back basically said, you know, ruled that this was an antitrust violation, that you're not paying the players, right? Yeah, there that is a big ask. Basically, the Supreme Court said you're breaking the law. And rather than saying, okay, let us get back within compliance with the law, the NCAA has said, okay, let's go to Congress and ask them to change the law. Do you feel like the students themselves are actively engaged with the future of how they're paid? Most college athletes already have enough on their plate between having to go to class and play their sport that worrying about the future of this is a very low priority for them. And most of the college athletes now, anything that's going to happen in legislation, they'll be gone. Their their eligibility to be a college athlete will have expired by the time any of this comes into shape. It's important to remember that every American citizen has the right to use their name, image, and likeness to make money. It's only once you sign up to play a college sport that the NCAA has traditionally clawed back some of those rights from college athletes. Um, so, you know, really any law that's put in place theoretically is is restricting some of these athletes more than the average citizen. It's interesting. You're laying out all these kind of structural reasons why the NCAA is pretty likely to get what they want. Like they, <laughs> they just they can wait student athletes out and they care a lot about this in a way that. The student athletes can't. This is just like a blip in their life, a couple years, four years maybe. The biggest point of leverage that college athletes have ever had is the threat that, hey, maybe we won't play. Maybe on Saturday before the final four, we'll decide to sit it out and then you guys will have to deal with that with the amount of money that flows through these sports. But because the window of opportunity for college athletes to play their sport and to perform is so small, that's that's always been really difficult, right? The way this is handled in professional sports is players in the NBA or the NFL form unions and they negotiate and collectively bargain for a piece of the profits from their sport and for all of the rights that they enjoy. That's a long, complicated process. And college athletes have never had the time to be around long enough to benefit from that, which is why we see this playing out now more in a legislative process than in sort of a collective bargaining way that that it has in many other sports. Dan seems skeptical that the NCAA is going to be able to put this long-running controversy over paying athletes to bed with just a simple wave of Congress's wand. He thinks that in order to really set things right, the NCAA will have to be bolder. 
ultimately, I think the NCAA is this huge behemoth of an association that has so many different parties with, with very different interests that it could solve a lot of people's problems if they decide to split off and say, hey, part of this is a big multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. And for the rest of these schools, it's closer to an after-school, educationally enriching academic experience. And the schools that want this to be an entertainment industry should go and do that. And the rest of us should take a step back and make this more uh, of an educational after-school activity. Right now, the NCAA is trying to do both, and that's causing all kinds of problems for everybody involved. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I really get it now. Thanks for having me. Dan Murphy is a staff writer at ESPN. He's also the author of Start by Believing, Larry Nasser's crimes, the institutions that enabled him, and the brave women who stopped a monster. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support from Laura Spencer these days. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow.